Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of AJHP Voices. This podcast engages authors from recent AJHP publications who will give us an inside look at their research and explore the impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes. My name is Daniel Koba, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Today, I'm taking over the AJHP Voices microphone for longtime host and former AJHP Chief Editor, William A. Zelmer. Bill, thank you for your tremendous service to AJHP Voices since you conceptualized the idea in 2010. Today, we'll be discussing the 2021 ASHP ASHP Foundation Pharmacy Forecast Report, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Our guests are the report's editor and authors, starting with author Dr. Janet Carmichael, pharmacy consultant and formerly the pharmacy executive for the Veterans Administration Vision 21, Dr. Joseph DePiro, Dean and the Archie O. McCallie Chair at the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Pharmacy, and Dr. Rita Shane, Vice President and Chief Pharmacy Officer and Professor of Medicine, Cedar sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Jan, Joe, and Rita, thank you for joining me today. I'd like to start off with a question for the group. Participation and development of the Pharmacy Forecast Report requires a tremendous amount of your time. Simply said, it's a lot of work. What drives you to volunteer your time to this report? Joe, I'll start with you as the editor. Dan, I really enjoy the professional networking, getting to know our advisory committee members and learning from them. And this certainly helps me to stay current in the hot topics of our profession. I've been a ASHP member since 1977 and have always appreciated and valued the opportunities to volunteer over those years. Thanks, Joe. Rita, what about you? What brings you back for this year after year? So I would echo what Joe said. I, I mean, the networking is just a tremendous opportunity get to get to know colleagues that I respect and get to know more on a personal basis. It validates our values uh, in terms of the profession, kind of reignites the passion. And I think what I enjoy in addition to that is just the big picture thinking. Uh, that to me has always been important to be able to be effective in our roles. We, we need to really pay attention to what's going on. And so the, the forecasting process provides an excellent opportunity to do that. Jan, what about you? Is it, is it the big picture thinking and the networking for you as well, or is there a different dimension to it? Absolutely. I'm a big fan of strength-based leadership. And I always encourage my residents and my team to sort of understand themselves through understanding their own strengths. And one of the things I've learned about myself is that my biggest strength is I'm strategic. And why that sounds kind of sexy and all, the, the real thing about being a strategic is that all you do is just pop your head above the crowd a little bit and see patterns where other people just don't see that. They see confusion. And so one of the things that just intrigues me about this group is you're in a room with a whole bunch of other people like-minded who are really interested in what's gonna happen into pharmacy in the future. And putting all that together and, and sort of understanding what other people think might happen, really asking, what if this happens? Okay, well, what if that happens? You can kind of see around the next corner a little bit better than you might've been able to do on your own. 
So I find it absolutely fascinating to get into this room with a whole bunch of other people who can think strategically. You know, Jan, your comments on strategic thinking are actually a nice lead into a question that I have for Joe. And, and Joe, that is it. In your introduction to this year's pharmacy forecast report, you state that an underlying assumption supporting the need for the pharmacy forecast is that many factors influencing our profession and pharmacy services are not directly under our control, yet we can take actions that enhance the likelihood of favorable outcomes within this environment. What did you mean by that when you wrote those words? Well, none of us even pretend to be able to predict the future about healthcare with any good accuracy, but we can estimate the likelihood of a range of possibilities So when we recognize this range of possibility, we can better prepare for it by forethought and action to minimize risk. Uh, And the assumption is that the thought and preparation will put our institutions in a better position for a favorable outcome. That's really it. Interesting. Rita, you were extensively involved in the development of the Vizient High Value Pharmacy Enterprise Framework. And... Can you tell us, and and actually the HVPE, as it's known, is going to be published in the the same issue of HHP. Can you tell us a bit more about HVPE? What is it? Okay, so so the rationale behind that was if we if we think back, the Pharmacy Practice Model Summit was in 2010. And so a couple of years ago, the Vizian Executive Committee was discussing what are our needs now and into the future. And we recognized there was a need to kind of reboot on what are the elements of a high value pharmacy enterprise? And uh, we, some of us had participated in the high performance pharmacy, which even predates the PPMI. And it, it seemed like as we looked at all of the challenges, little did we know what we were challenges were gonna be in 2020. But at that time in 2018, when we were looking at, at, at challenges for the future, we needed to provide a framework and it's essentially eight chapters, eight dimensions that comprise what, what is needed to be successful in providing the highest value pharmacy services. So from my perspective, uh, that document helps to define excellence and best practices across the various number of dimensions that represent pharmacy. The forecast is kind of the context. So to be successful in managing the dimensions of pharmacy practice, one has to understand what's going on in terms of, of all of these areas of what I call the context of healthcare, some of which are specific to pharmacy and have significant implications. But the framework sits within this context, if you will, kind of like the sky and the, the, the building below it, if you would. It's kind of the way I think about it. I want to ask you a follow-up question and then pose it to the entire panel about your uh, comment there about some of the synergy between the forecast and the HVPE framework. But I want to take one step back for a minute and explore one word that actually I think might be transformational. And I'm interested in sort of where it came from and your perspectives on it. And and that is enterprise uh, versus a pharmacy department, pharmacy services, What's the the importance of the use of the term enterprise as part of all of this? So the pharmacy department sets up a kind of a siloed department within an organization um, that has operations and functions to me that are somewhat limited within that, that organization. Whereas the word enterprise denotes a much broader 
uh, not only um, scope of responsibility, but scope of influence in terms of the role that pharmacy plays in, in health system practice, whether it's in the acute care setting or across the continuum of care. So it, an enterprise to me has is more multidimensional and, and provides an opportunity to really enable pharmacists and the pharmacy traditional department to have not only influence, but directly support all of the different priorities and initiatives across an organization. Got it. So Rita, you started to talk about some of the synergies between the the pharmacy forecast report and the HVPE framework. And one that is touted, uh, we'll see it in editorials that accompany this in HHP, is strategic planning. So Jan, let me turn back to you for a moment. In your consulting practice and as you're working with your clients, for example, do you turn to these resources, the forecast report, for example, do you turn to it as a strategic planning resource? for your, either as your planning, your work with your clients, or to actually guide them through their strategic planning? Absolutely. I would say I probably reread the forecast a couple times every year. Uh, one of the opportunities I had to do that with that recently was I was invited to do a consultation with the College of Pharmacy recently. This was pre-COVID, and I prepared a presentation ironically entitled, Compelling Forces and Powers Unseen That Affect Pharmacy. And this was, of course, never delivered because we had this pandemic. And that year we had addressed the black swan issue within the forecast. And as I said, this is just so ironic because, you know, who could have foreseen this national pandemic? But if we look at some of the signs and, and things that we might have predicted, I guess some of us might have thought that could happen, right? But another opportunity that I've used uh, the forecast in is I'm a part of the ASHP Foundation Visiting Leaders Program, which is basically uh, an application by any residency program institution to have uh, one of many of us, I think Reed is also on that panel, to come in talk to their residents. And um, this year we went virtual and I have used the forecast on that occasion, on several occasions to get the residents to start thinking more globally and divide them into groups to talk about the various opportunities within the forecast. Pharmacists have a tendency to be pretty myopic as we deliver small molecules to people with very specific disease states. And I think it helps all of us to back up every now and then and look at a macro view of the things. And certainly the forecast is divided into areas that allow us to do that. You know, your comments about the black swan chapter are, are interesting. I, as I think back on your work as an advisory committee last year and the inclusion of telehealth, how prescient was that at the point where when you first met, uh, we had no understanding of what the, the true reach and impact of the pandemic would be. Joe, what about in the academic environment? Are schools and colleges of pharmacy using the forecast report? Do you, are you using it at VCU? Nationally, I'm not sure how often it's used by students. However, it is used by our practice faculty to determine some of the key topics that they include in their practice lab discussions. Um, I'm also aware that our APPE students on an advanced institutional rotations will use it. So it does get use. And I think that it could be a useful source of discussion topics at each year of the PharmD program. We talk so much about 
developing critical thinking. And I think so much in there is just great to, to develop critical thinking. The other thing is that we have used it in our school strategic planning process. A few years ago, even before I was involved in it, we, we uh, invited Bill Selmer to uh, speak to our advisory group at the school about the forecast and had some discussion around that that then led into our current strategic plan. Can you speak further to some ways that the forecast ultimately influenced the plan? You know, when you um, look at a few key areas to see, uh, get a better understanding of where we may be headed in healthcare financing, for example, it's admittedly a struggle to have our students come to understand what, how that works, how healthcare financing works as, as we all have challenges to understand that. But also, I think another area where we're now trying to enhance our curriculum is in data, data analytics, data informatics. And there's so much of that that has come from past uh, reports as well. Thinking about the workforce, pharmacy workforce, I, you know, it's just about every major topic that's been in the forecast uh, over the last few years is is directly relevant to curriculum. That makes sense. That makes complete sense. Well, Rita, turning back to you, because you were the, you, you started this conversation off and recognizing some of the synergy between HVPE and the forecast report. And I'm wondering how you use the forecast report and as well HVPE and strategic planning in your pharmacy enterprise at Cedars-Sinai. I think I would echo some of the things that, that Joe said. I think that there's so many areas of the forecast that are very relevant to practice. And we actually, we occasionally do a deliberate strategic planning retreat, but I would have to say that if I think back over the last several years, it's much more dynamic because we're finding the marketplace moving very quickly as well as workforce issues. And what I find really useful with respect to the forecast is how predictive it is. I mean, let's just talk about the topics we've been talking about. Black Squan. I remember that was it February 19, Jan. We were walk, we were sitting around at ASHB headquarters, and this this concept of Black Swan came came up, and we had fun with it. And you know, literally, we did we know that within a year we'd be living it. And yet, that made us start thinking about what, how are we going to plan for the unexpected? What are the contingency planning we're going to have to do? How flexible are we going to need to be to cross-train people? And, and that kind of thinking was actually extremely invaluable because we actually were living it by March of last year. When we talk about workforce and some of the shortages we've seen with sterile compounding, it's really made me push to making sure that we look at that, not only from a uh, salary perspective, which we've done for years, but really trying to identify how do we, uh, how do we expose contemporary pharmacists who went into this field to be clinical pharmacists that part of ensuring that we provide safe medication use includes uh, responsibility for for doing things like sterile compounding which is not as attractive supply chain goodness gracious we were all concerned about supply chain integrity for some time and drug shortages last year was was actually what i would call an emergency course in supply chain for pharmacy staff who never even thought about it. The drugs show up, they, they come in. We don't have to worry about how we're going to ensure sufficient supply of these drugs that COVID patients need because they're for in the ICU settings, we needed to really make sure. So I had decentral clinical pharmacists in, in the main pharmacy um, receiving drugs 
And then also the process of, of ensuring that we could uh, decontaminate them and, 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 and quarantine them. Those are supply chain issues. And yet that too is in the forecast. So I think the forecast to me has been a predictor of key elements that I may not otherwise have thought about that are then borne out in, in subsequent year or years because of the, the wisdom of the crowd's approach that we take to creating the forecast. Interesting. And, and Rita, you made that point that I think is very interesting in terms of you know, this regular scheduled strategic planning every one, two, three years, however you, uh, you do it, versus dynamic strategic planning. And I would imagine that you had to apply a lot of that in your department, in your, again, enterprise planning during the pandemic. Are there other, I guess, tips or guidance that you would give to other pharmacy leaders in terms of dynamic strategic planning versus a regularly scheduled event every two or three years? Yeah, I've just, you know, and this is based on our own experience here. I think that I do think having kind of a timeout to strategically plan enables us to engage people across our departments and other departments as well to think and have really a pause without all of the activities of daily living that we're busy with. Jan described them so well um, a few mo moments ago. So I, I would not say that one shouldn't do the, you know, the, the formal strategic planning, but I do think that strategic planning should be integrated into the work of, of, of the leadership team and in, engaging staff as well to get their thoughts on, on what they're seeing in their practice environments. And it actually just becomes integrated into, into what I would call leadership work. I am um, with the, the other um, thing that we do in, in our team is um, in addition to meeting with my entire leadership team, which includes our managers, about once a month or every four to six weeks, I have a, a meeting called Stratum and it's a strategic meeting. And the purpose of that is to bring forth any issues that we may not be addressing in the next week or month, but we actually need to have a list going and prioritize and reprioritize on an ongoing basis of issues. They could be tactical, they could be operational and um, the goal is to be strategic in terms of thinking of things. So right now I can tell you, I had one, one of my 32 year managers walk out on Friday, no, my 40 year manager walk out on Friday and I have a 32 year associate director walking out this Friday. So I'm losing 72 years of experience in one week. And my, my priority focus for strategy going forward is all gonna be about workforce and leaders and just making sure that we don't skip a step or lose a step because I'm losing 72 years of experience in, in a week. Yeah, sorry to hear that for sure. Let's turn to some of the individual chapters at this point. And Jan, I'm going to start off with you. In your chapter, there were six survey questions that guided the recommendations that you and your co-author, Dr. Joy Meyer, developed. What are the big takeaway messages from those survey results in the chapter that, that you and Joy wrote? Well, first, I, I just want to acknowledge Joy Meyer in this process. Joy is one of the few chief health information officers that I know. She's a pharmacist, but is had currently occupied this role as a that physicians generally have. And I was the data warehouse manager in Vision 21. So Joy and I have about a 20 year history of working together, managing data in the VA. So she was the perfect partner for this chapter, which we entitled Pharmacy Analytics and Use of Big Data. And we had great discussions prior to writing this and kind of came to the conclusion that most, most health systems have been focused on 
health information technology, installation and data storage. These are sort of the things that collect data. You know, we've been hooking up systems for a number of years so that we have the composite of all the data that we potentially can harness at our disposals. And the time really has come to perhaps place more emphasis on the output of those systems and harness this vast knowledge base that we've come to collect. And so we had three survey questions, three of which dealt with the sort of ethics and legal uh, decision-making that one would have to do from the output of that data. And three were sort of clinical decision-making um, output. And these are, you know, how would pharmacists help in using the analytical and decision-making data related to these use case scenarios. And so we had a lot of fun with this because we felt that pharmacy informatics is really no longer separate from pharmacians or from clinical pharmacy services any longer. And Rita talked about the almost like, uh, you know, data now has become a fabric of decision-making in our healthcare systems. It's not a separate thing any longer that we just pay attention to because we're installing some new software or hardware. It really has to become integrated into all the things that we do. And we felt that more emphasis really should be put on integrating pharmacy analytics, which we talked about as being, you know, leveraging the use of that health system data to optimize clinical practice outcomes and drive innovation within pharmacy. I said operations, but I think Rita's better term might be the pharmacy enterprise. And so big data analytics and use empowers healthcare systems to strategically support cost-effective evidence-based decisions and improve individual population health outcomes. And so the part of this whole process was not really, it's now a question of how do we advance or leverage the use of this big data, not just installing it. And we need sort of more people, I think, to help us do that. So Jan, that's a great segue into really your top recommendation that, and, and you've talked to the importance of this, but I maybe just to expand on it a bit further, your top recommendation, and, and Joe made reference to this in talking about the curricular needs in schools and colleges of pharmacy. You and Joy said at the top of your list, your recommendation was to recruit, resource, and expand of a team of pharmacists, health informatics professionals with strong clinical decision-making skills. So you've spoken to that a bit, but tell me a bit more why that's so important. Well, I think it goes back to this notion that I was discussing about how analytics and patient outcomes need to drive decisions and strategic directions of both pharmacy operations and clinical pharmacy service decisions. And perhaps even you know, there was another section on safe medication use and evidence-based medication decisions throughout the health system. And certainly pharmacists are really uniquely qualified and probably inherently responsible for those kinds of decisions. We've created a whole group of pharmacists that are trained to make appropriate evidence-based decisions for individual patients. And certainly this is a prerequisite for designing systems for hundreds or even thousands of, of patients through computer algorithms, and also for using that data ethically in order to make decisions about how the health system might respond both ethically and legally to certain challenges about decisions of making, uh, excuse me, using data. 
So to ensure that these professionals contribute uh, far beyond just the installation and the integration of computer hardware and software, they also have to now have the ability to use data and the ability to grow on trees. There aren't a lot of these type of individuals actually out there. And so I think one of the next recommendations we made was that we probably need to incorporate a lot of these advanced sets of core knowledge into pharmacy informatics residency training or other places in which we can train the number of individuals we're going to need to do this kind of evaluation and data use. Thanks, Jan. I'd, I'd like to go back maybe and look at one of the survey responses in a, from your section and get opinions really around the, the table on this, both from Rita and Joe, as well as from, from you, Jan. But in your section, 73% of the survey respondents indicated that in at least 50% of health systems, the EHR will use algorithms that combine patient-specific variables to actually compute optimal drug doses and therapies. And then another survey question, the results showed that 69% uh, of re respondents indicated that, that in at least 50% of health systems, algorithms built into the EHR will detect instances when a medication order deviates from the institution's historical pattern. So here we have data, we have basically artificial intelligence uh, computing optimal drug doses and therapies, identifying when orders deviate from, from patterns. So the natural question to all of you as pharmacy leaders is, so what are the implications of these findings for pharmacy practice and pharmacists. So Rita, I'm going to start with you and uh, you know how you look at this. Uh, is this a, a good thing or a bad thing for, for your team at Cedars-Sinai? So I look at it as a good thing. I think about what even practice today, even with the highest level of training that, that, that pharmacists are getting through through schools of pharmacy and you know and through um, advanced training, postgraduate uh, residency training. And yet staff are still mired in transaction-based pharmacy. You know, the, the, the volume orders coming through, trying to prioritize and identify those highest risk patients who not only because of their, what I call their poly problem, poly disease and, and, and poly doc and uh, poly pharmacy, trying to identify those patients who are gonna need more assistance, um, not only during their hospitalization, but to have a successful transition out is very, very challenging without artificial intelligence and machine learning. So what I'm hearing and what the survey respondents are predicting could happen is that some of that information is gonna get taken care of that will enable the pharmacist who can now apply their knowledge and skills to figuring out how to customize what the patient needs, not only from the acute perspective, meaning uh, resolving their underlying reason for admission, but to actually identify maybe some of the issues that are going to be important for that patient to be able to successfully be discharged and, and take their medications effectively in, in the future. There's so much noise now in, in the day of the life of a pharmacist. Anything that can be done to actually streamline the noise and, and prioritize to enable the pharmacist to actually utilize the knowledge and skills is to me welcome. And I think will enable pharmacists to actually translate the treatment plan, not only in terms of the treatments being given in the acute care setting, 
but to engage more with that patient, which can be very challenging with all of the noise coming at the pharmacist every day. So Joe, I see you nodding your head. And so when you think about uh, training the student and that uh, new normal that Rita just described, how does that affect the way you prepare pharmacists during the, the PharmD curriculum? Good question. Uh, start back a step or so how um, these kind of systems get imp- implemented. Clearly, it's a two-edged sword. And the upside is helping to reduce inappropriate variation in drug use, which students need to know and be able to identify, you know, where we are training them to make decisions about therapy. And I don't really see this as taking decision-making authority away from practitioners, but perhaps helping with decision-making, decision support. And as Rita is saying, really the upside is that time can be used more effectively or efficiently for high-risk patients. And I think that's what we would need to have students see, that it's helping them focus their activity where they could have the most impact. That makes sense. That makes sense. Jan, from a a consultant's perspective, uh, again, uh, along the same lines, are, are, are you grappling with this or do you see your clients grappling with the, the role of data and artificial intelligence in your consulting practice? Absolutely. And again, I'm going to make a plug here for this pharmacy informaticist, because I honestly think that some of the guidance on how to use the data, the huge amount of analysis that we could do behind the scenes. And I think one of the reasons the survey responses were so high in this is that most systems are using some kind of a calculator behind their order sets already to identify people with low glomerular filtration rates or liver function abnormalities that could then, again, affect greatly the type of of dose we would give in terms of medication use. And I think the question really becomes, are we going to associate this kind of use with every dosing order that we have, or are we going to just do it for select high-risk patients? And there's certainly an efficacy that has to be considered and somebody has to make decisions about guidance on how to apply those data rules to all these different drugs that we have. And so I think that's the kind of thing that people are going to be grappling with is it we make sure it does make things easier for everybody instead of harder. Thanks, Jan. So in her chapter, Dean Marie Chisholm Burns and her colleagues recommended that Health system pharmacy leaders build on the expanded use of telehealth during the coronavirus pandemic to implement and with an emphasis on permanently to implement permanently telepharmacy that will enhance medication related outcomes of all patients in the health system, including those in underserved areas. In their narrative, they went on to point out that limited access to technology may be a potential barrier in some underserved populations and and that that needs to be rectified. Rita and Joe, in in your organizations, what's happening with the use of pharmacists in telehealth? And I would take that one step further. And uh, are there specific steps that are being taken to make sure that access is being equalized, that there, there truly is equity to in access to telehealth for across the population. Let me comment on that first. I, I, well, telehealth 
became the only way we could do certain functions during this COVID pandemic. Uh, and it, we even we could even say we loosely employed telehealth to get medication histories for our inpatients at the time that we didn't have PPE. We used telehealth extensively for our oral chemo program because we, we interact with those patients on a monthly basis. Our organization is very focused on how to reach underserved patient populations. That's still a work in progress, but that's certainly something front and center on our radar because that's our community re responsibility. You know, telehealth can be as simple as a phone, but again, some underserved populations might not have phones and we do have community programs. And in fact, um, our pharmacists have done outreach to some of those underserved populations, not necessarily with telehealth, but with education. But I think telehealth is going to be the new norm. And I think it offers actually some efficiency for patients and for um, healthcare workers and pharmacists in particular. I think we can actually reach more patients. And so I'm gonna say that we should look at this as an, as an opportunity that the pandemic has provided us. And I think for those of us who believe in Darwin, Darwinian evolution, I think we will see continued refinement. And I believe that there will be resources for the underserved because oftentimes those are the most vulnerable and need access to healthcare. And so maybe we don't have all of that turnkey today, but I believe there that we will see more and more availability of resources to help underserved populations because that that is our priority in healthcare. Joe, a similar experience in Richmond or throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia? I would say so. We're similar to other medical centers where telehealth has been extensively used for patient care pharmacy services during the COVID era. Clearly, earlier in the year, there was a peak of telehealth use that's now down from that peak, but still much greater than pre-COVID. And our institution, like uh, many others, is committed to providing care to underserved populations, be it urban or rural. And so that's naturally going to be a part of what happens here. I don't have pharmacy-specific data, but I'm aware from talking with our clinical pharmacist colleagues that they're still using telehealth as the predominant communication mode or healthcare mode for outpatient care. So we expect that to continue at some significant level into the future. So our challenge from a school of pharmacy is figuring out how students can best participate and learn in a telehealth environment. That's fascinating. What, can you speak a bit more to what some of those challenges are and have, have your faculty been able to overcome those barriers at all? I think it's too early to tell. It is happening. Students are being involved. You know, when you have, you have preceptor and student and patient in three different locations. And so it's coordination of communication. I think that uh, our, our practitioners are learning themselves this past year, how they give care, how they provide care. And so it's requiring new approaches for then how do you incorporate a student? And, uh, you know, if you think the old days where you would have a student uh, go in and see the patient first, be it in a clinic or a, on the ward, and then the pharmacist would meet with the student and then see the patient, it, it happens differently. And I, I think our faculty and pharmacists here are trying to figure that out, trying different things. What works best? Well, as we get ready to wrap up, I, I want to get to one other survey question that is that caught my attention. And actually, I, I was a bit caught off guard by the, the results. And, and a question that accompanied David Bates and James Hoffman's chapter on patient safety 
82% of the respondents indicated that it was somewhat or very unlikely, so somewhat or very unlikely, that in at least 50% of health systems, preventable harm for medications will be non-existent or extremely rare. A pretty dense sentence there. But uh, this is disappointing news 20 years after to Air as Human. Bates and Hoffman go on to recommend advocacy for a pharmacist to be placed in an organization-wide role with corresponding authority to provide strategic leadership for medication use and patient safety. I guess the the question that I have for each of you is, really, will placement of pharmacists in these types of roles move the needle to eliminating preventable harm uh, related to medications? And Jan, I'm going to start with you this time. Yeah, I think that what we've learned maybe at least somewhat in the last 20 years is that a lot of these, quote, preventable harm issues are system issues. They are the way our processes work, the way it's the, you know, nobody goes out and intends to inflict harm on patients. So the, you know, the Swiss cheese model of things slip through the cracks or through the holes. And I think the idea of having pharmacists involved in those areas where we have the most process. And in many cases, this this is exactly our territory, you know, trying to find why specifically harm occurs because of medications. I will say, though, that I think the innate nature of medication use is probably why the response was so high uh, that these, that, that we were going to be able to entirely prevent Um, medication harm. I think we all understand that there is inherent harm in many of the medications that we use. And while we can improve the systems um, and the process that we use to deliver those in best we can, to reduce that to non-existent harm is probably something we all realize is not going to happen. But I do think that pharmacists are certainly in a terrific position to eliminate as much of that as possible by understanding the processes by which we deliver medications. So Rita, what about at at Cedars-Sinai? And if you look at a pharmacist in an even broader role uh, beyond a medication safety role, but really a patient safety role, do you, as, as again, Hoffman and Bates recommended, do you see that as a possible way of moving the needle? And and getting us closer to uh, eliminating preventable harm? Yeah, I would echo some of the things that, that Jan said and just take it, I guess, take it to the next step. When you think about uh, pharmacists, we are system thinkers because we think end to end from, you know, from procuring the drug all the way through administration and then monitoring. And so that skill set that, that really creates a disciplined approach to thinking about everything end to end. I mean, I can tell you with vaccine planning recently, the ability of, of us to lay out the entire process from the time we received those ultra cold vaccines till their administration and monitoring patients for safety is something that pharmacy brought to the table. Everybody else was trying to just figure out who can vaccinate, right? So I think we have this inherent thought process that lends itself very much to patient safety. And certainly in in the years that I sent around tables of different root cause analyses or suggested we do failure mode effects, failure mode effects analyses in preparation from something for, for a new device or a new system that we bring that kind of ability to look through the steps in the process as opposed to just taking anecdotal information about an error and assuming something happened. We learn to step back and actually look at all the steps and determine 
what processes can be changed or what is, you know, some of what I call the inherent flaws in, 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 in humans, which inevitably occur and which need to be recognized. And, and therefore, there's always an opportunity for creating a learning culture out of any sort of an error. I mean, we all say a near miss is a gift. An error that reached the patient that didn't cause harm is also a gift. And those should be celebrated and, in fact, shared because that's the only way we're going to get to be safer. So having a pharmacist in an elevated position that enables individuals who have this way of thinking that I think is just inherently how we're raised in the profession can then be leveraged to really support patient safety beyond just the medication use safety that we focus on. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, your comment on a, a learning moment, I think it was that you, it, Joe, really leads into a, a final question for you. And that really is, are the students that we're preparing, are, are they, do they see themselves as uh, uh, getting prepared to take on these broader organizational responsibilities for not only medication use, but medication safety and ultimately patient safety? It's a good question, Dan. Uh, clearly, medication safety has been front and center, and I, I think they hear and learn a lot about that. I wonder, though, about the organization-wide role. Uh, we spend so much time in our profession learning and training people about how pharmacies work and health system pharmacies, but it's so much more than that, obviously. We need to learn more about how our institutions, the health systems work, and for somebody to be effective in this role, they've got to be savvy at uh, institutional politics to get changes made. And I think that's a, a long uh, learning curve there to become proficient at uh, the institutional politics that it takes to be effective in these roles. Well, I wish we had some time to just have a really long conversation about that. I actually think I'm going to invite the three of you to write uh, an HHP commentary on the importance of truly leading change uh, and navigating some of those institutional issues. I think that could be a really interesting topic in and of itself to explore. But with that, that's all the time we have today. And I want to thank Drs. Janet Carmichael, Joseph DePiro, and Rita Shane for joining us to discuss the 2021 ASHP ASHP Foundation Pharmacy Forecast Report, which was recently published on www.hhp.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.